It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 338 for April 14th, 2013. This week, fake Twitter followers can hurt more than help. What's the total cost of ownership for tablets? Only a few critical Windows patches this month, but you need to get them. And in short circuits, there is no such thing as a free lunch. And you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. When I decided to resurrect the more abundant TechBiter account on Twitter, I had a new choice to make. Should I artificially inflate the number of followers by hiring fake followers? I elected not to, but no small number of Twitter users seem to think that they'll gain more respect or credibility if they suddenly have a few thousand extra followers, even if those followers aren't real. It's a bad idea, but as a business model for hucksters, it's turning out to be a license to print money. And with fraudsters come the white hats, such as social bakers and status people. They're the ones who try to develop techniques that will highlight sites with a lot of fake followers. In some cases, fake followers are easy to identify because they arrive in such a short period. That was the case when Mitt Romney's flagging Twitter account suddenly saw an infusion of 100,000 new followers. The number of organizations willing to create new followers for you seems to be increasing, too. Just do a Google search for any term that might suggest that you want to increase the number of your followers. Besides the ethical questions involved with buying fake followers, there is one serious consideration that has nothing at all to do with your ethics. The people who create fake followers clearly play somewhat loose with business ethics, and if you hire one of them to create followers for your site, you'll have to give them your credit card number. Is that wise? Here's how it works. Need a quick thousand new followers? It'll probably cost you less than 20 bucks. And for a price that low, you might conclude that it's unlikely that the fake follower mongers create the fake accounts manually. Well, you'd be right. In fact, software exists to create fake Twitter users. When you sign up for a Twitter account, there's a lot of information that Twitter asks for. Real people often leave out some of the information, but the software that creates the phony followers... Eh, it generally fills in all the details. Italian researchers Andrea Stropa and Carlo Dumichelli wrote about the Romney campaign's use of Twitter. And I have to warn you that what I have is a fairly rough translation from the original Italian. They wrote, Since the beginning of 2012, there have been many articles that talked about the growth of fake Twitter accounts. This summer, the scandal broke in the mainstream media when followers of the Romney Twitter account grew by 10% in a single day. Analysis shows that the new followers were mainly fake. They provide a graph that shows the inconsistent growth. This isn't intended as a late hit on the Romney campaign, and it's certainly not an indictment of the candidate. It is intended to show how someone in an organization can land the entire operation in hot water simply by trying to cheat the system. This is why buying a few hundred or a few hundred thousand followers is really a bad idea. 
The researchers note that what seems to be the innocuous purchase of fake followers fuels a multi-million dollar industry. The providers often position themselves as social media experts. In this way, they're similar to the phony search engine optimization operators that promise immediate top 10 results with Google. Strappa and DiMichelli reported that they contacted some of the vendors of fake followers and then worked with Barracuda Labs to determine that each fake account follows about 2,000 users. If you assume that 1,000 fake users would cost about $18, these marketing experts, as they like to be called, earn up to 30 bucks for each fake account. It's a pretty good return for an action that can be completed automatically with software. Some fake accounts even have the intelligence to tweet or retweet, include profile pictures, and may even have a complete historical past. Needless to say, these capabilities increase what the fraudsters will charge their clients. Unlike many other social media sites, Twitter doesn't require users to provide a working email address. This alone makes the process of creating fake users much easier. Twitter does display a CAPTCHA when it detects requests for multiple accounts from the same IP address, but CAPTCHAs are easily defeated. In fact, services exist to get around them. CAPTCHA, by the way, is an acronym for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. These are typically presented as text or numbers that are difficult to read but can be discerned by a human while being unreadable by an optical character recognition system. Usually, they also have an audio version that may be used by people who have limited or no vision. The systems that can be put into place to defeat CAPTCHAs often involve hiring people in third world countries, so that the service can be provided for a penny or two per CAPTCHA, often less. The Italian researchers say that one of the organizations they spoke with boasted about being able to create 100,000 new followers in just a few days. thinking about buying a tablet. Maybe you're wondering what the total cost of ownership would be. Intel sponsored research on the total cost of ownership of Atom-based tablets. They were compared against Apple and Android devices and against NVIDIA-powered Windows RT tablets. Surprisingly, or maybe not, the tablet with the Intel processor won. Perhaps as interesting as the research itself is the Atom-based tablet selected for testing. Instead of picking a Microsoft Surface Pro device, the research company Principled Technologies reviewed a Lenovo ThinkPad tablet. Although Intel financed the study, research organizations are usually very careful not to misrepresent data, although they sometimes do ask their questions very carefully. Researchers said that they started with the base price of the tablets, ranging from $600 to $700, and then added costs for hardware support, keyboards, and software. They also added estimated management costs, and they included estimated productivity savings to calculate the final cost over a two-year period. The Windows 8 tablet with the Intel Atom processor had the lowest two-year TCO. Most companies, however, calculate TCO over three years. That's because that's the expected life of most computers. 
Researchers need to make certain assumptions and principled technologies was very clear about theirs. To be considered, a tablet needed to offer at least a 9-inch diagonal screen, Wi-Fi support, and no less than 64 gigabytes of storage. Only tablets that came with or could be fitted with a keyboard, keyboard cover, stand, or dock would be included. The manufacturer had to include a two-year support plan with accidental damage protection. Only tablets that allow users to read and edit Microsoft Word documents and Excel spreadsheets, as well as to access documents on SharePoint sites and connect to a Microsoft Exchange server to receive and send email could be included. Each user in the organization would be assumed to have a Microsoft Enterprise Client Access License Suite. This is an agreement with Microsoft that allows all users within the organization to receive application updates. The calculated two-year TCO would be the cost of the device itself, keyboard accessories, hardware support, software, software support, deployment, user training, and help desk support. Help Desk Support would use the Microsoft System Center Configuration Manager 2012 to manage Windows 8 tablets. It would use the Microsoft System Center Configuration Manager 2012 along with Microsoft Intune to manage Windows RT tablets. And it would use a cloud-based mobile device management tool to manage iOS and Android devices. So those are the assumptions. You may recall that I've described previously the frustration I encountered with an Android tablet. Looked a lot like Windows, but didn't act like it. And my frustration with Windows after using an Android tablet. I was still using Windows 7 at the time, and Windows 7 doesn't do anything when you touch the screen. The Windows 8 tablet that I purchased a few months ago has been a delight to use because it runs Windows, provides touchscreen access, and has a separate keyboard for times when I need to type. In other words, the researchers' assumptions seemed both reasonable and accurate based on my experience. I do not, however, own an iPad, so I can't personally make the comparison. Logic would suggest, though, that the person who uses a Windows computer and Windows applications on the desktop might occasionally be a bit confused by having to deal with the Android operating system, as I did, or with Apple's iOS on an iPad. I also can't make any comparison to devices that run Windows 8 RT, but RT is the operating system that looks a lot like Windows, yet doesn't really work like Windows. If Microsoft made any serious mistakes in rolling out Windows 8 and its touch-centric Surface computers, the RT is that problem, because some users have purchased these models only to be infuriated when they learn that the applications that they want to run, such as Word or Excel, won't run on them, because they run only Windows 8 apps. The Atom-based devices are true computers. They just happen to have taken on the form of a tablet. The study explains it this way, and I quote, The Windows RT operating system is available only with the purchase of a less powerful ARM processor-based Windows RT tablet. Microsoft released the RT on its own Surface RT tablet, and other vendors have released tablets with Windows RT. Windows RT systems run only built-in apps or apps downloaded from the Windows Store and do not include the full features of the Windows 8 release. I found it somewhat surprising that the researchers expected the Apple iPad to have the most costly downtime, $375 compared to $300 for the Windows Atom-based tablet and $270 for each of the Android and Windows RT devices. Additionally, principal technologies predicted Apple, Android, and RT users would accrue an additional $90 in costs because of lost productivity. If not for that, the TCO for Android and RT would be lower than the Atom-based device, and the iPad, although still more costly, would be closer. 
Support costs were within a few dollars of each other for all but the Android device, and even then the difference was only $25. The Atom-based Windows 8 tablet was the most expensive device in terms of initial cost, about $925. That compares to $900 for the iPad, $875 for the Android tablet, and $800 for a Windows RT-based tablet. The full 28-page report is available from SlideShare. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. To obtain the report, you will need to create a free account using a LinkedIn account, Facebook, or your email address. week just ended included the second Tuesday of the month, so that means that Windows will have attempted to install updates, or will have at least recommended them to you depending on your Windows update settings. If you have all forms of automatic updating turned off, now would be a pretty good time to perform your manual update. Even if you don't use Internet Explorer, you should obtain and install the patches for IE. Some malware exploits are smart enough to call IE explicitly instead of using your default browser, and an unpatched browser is an open invitation to trouble. The patch covers IE 6 through IE 10, and if your preferred browser is Internet Explorer, you should already have upgraded to at least version 9, or if your operating system accepts it, to version 10. The IE update involves two vulnerabilities related to the way that IE handles objects in memory. A criminal could place malware on your computer and run it using the exploits, so Microsoft rates that patch as critical for desktop systems, but only moderate for servers. Another critical patch called Vulnerability in Remote Desktop Client Could Allow Remote Code Execution updates the Remote Desktop Client versions 6.1 and 7.0 to address another exploit that could allow a criminal to install and run code on your computer. As with the previous patch, this one is also only moderate on servers. Windows 7 is not affected if SP1 has been installed. Windows 8, Windows RT, and Windows Server 2012 are not affected at all. Windows Server 2003 is not affected if SP2 has been installed and if it's running on an Itanium system. One of the patches sounds a lot more serious than it really is. Users of all supported versions of Windows, that would be XP, Vista, 7, 8, RT, Server 2003, Server 2008, and Server 2012, will receive the patch. The patch eliminates a flaw that could allow attacker to gain administrator privileges. The reason that this serious-sounding threat isn't really particularly troublesome is the fact that it's not a remote threat. The attacker would have to actually be sitting in front of your computer. You'll find another five patches that are summarized on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and there are five additional patches that address non-security issues, along with the usual monthly update for malicious software removal tool. You'll find those listed briefly also on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, the IRS says there is no such thing as a free lunch. If your company provides lunch without charging for it, you may soon find that the value of those meals 
is added to your taxable income. This is causing no small amount of consternation at Google, where lots of benefits are provided without charge. Although other companies provide free meals and such, the practice is particularly popular in the high-tech industry. The IRS is reported to be considering whether to classify free meals, shuttle bus transportation, and even haircuts as fringe benefits on which employees must pay taxes. The companies that offer these services generally see them as ways to attract the best workers and to keep them at their desks. If you don't have to leave the building, you might finish lunch and be back at work in 20 minutes, even if the state has a mandated 60-minute lunch period. If you can walk downstairs to get a haircut, your time away from work will be less. So, needless to say, the idea is not being met with a great deal of applause, either by employees or employers. Particularly in Silicon Valley, the business-provided lunches aren't the kind of fare you might find at an insurance office in, oh, say, Pittsburgh. Instead of hamburgers and chips, companies such as Google have hired gourmet chefs to provide the kind of meals that would cost employees a lot of money if they had to pay for them. An article in the San Jose Mercury News lists some of the high-tech companies and the benefits they provide. At Google, there are gourmet meals and snacks, yoga classes, gym membership, and even cooking classes. Facebook offers free food at its Menlo Park headquarters, which has two main cafes. There's also a barbecue shack, a pizza shop, a burrito bar, and a 50s-style burger joint. If you work at Twitter, you can get three free meals a day at the San Francisco office. Same thing at Zynga. Uh, how about Apple? Sorry, if you're an Apple employee, you got to pay for your own stuff. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. Now, I'm not quite sure what the lyrics from an old Roger Miller song have to do with the former CEO of J.C. Penney, but I have to tell you, they came to mind when I heard that the retailer had fired its CEO, the former Apple store star, Ron Johnson, and the Apple connection is why this little story is on TechBiter Worldwide in the first place. In retrospect, Ron Johnson, who was a star at Apple, might have been wondering, what the heck was I thinking a year and a half ago? He accepted an offer to run J.C. Penney at that time. But the board of directors at J.C. Penney might also be thinking, what the heck were we thinking about a year and a half ago? What do you think of when you hear the term Apple? Maybe you think high-tech, or high-touch, or trendy, or overpriced. What do you think of when you hear J.C. Penney? Retail? Pedestrian? Clothing? Mid-range? Johnson designed the very successful and profitable Apple stores with their patented glass, staircases, genius bars, and astonishing use of open spaces. The stores are jewels. Consider just two New York City stores as examples, one on 5th Avenue at 59th Street, the other inside Grand Central Station. Johnson's bold and brash penny design, however, achieved two results, neither of them good or desired. First, it alienated many of the store's current customers, and second, it failed to attract new customers. As a result, Penny's sales have plummeted. Plummeted? What would you call a drop of 30%? I don't think you can call it anything else. So, Johnson is out, and the CEO he replaced, Myron Allman, has agreed to return. As for Johnson, might he return to Apple? 
Well, the company hired a replacement, but then fired him within a year. So, okay, guys, just go back to where you were, and as Gilda Radner might have said, Oh, well, never mind. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode of As the Apple Turns. Extremely detail-oriented people may have noticed that I called Grand Central, Grand Central Station. In the past, I've generally referred to it as Grand Central Terminal. So which is it? When Grand Central was built, and it turned 100 this year, it was a terminal. It was the end of the line for long-distance trains such as the Broadway Limited. But Grand Central no longer serves any trains such as that. Metro North's longest route is the Harlem Line. It ends in Brewster. That's about 50 miles north of the city. Grand Central also serves the Long Island Railroad, but its longest route is 115 miles, the Montauk Line. Although Grand Central is a terminal for Metro North and the Long Island Railroad, the largest number of people who use the building every day ride the East Side subway lines, or the number 7 to Queens, and the shuttle to Times Square so that they can connect with the West Side lines. The East Side lines see Grand Central as a stop on longer routes. The shuttle has only two stops, Grand Central and Times Square, so both of those actually are terminals for that line. So are you confused yet? Well, so am I. But I've decided to adopt the point of view that Sam Roberts puts forth in his book Grand Central, How a Train Station Transformed America. For me, it's now Grand Central Station. And the railroad purists will just have to deal with that. Sorry. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.